The following is a sermon podcast from White Ridge Baptist Church. Good morning. This morning I'll be reading from Romans 12, verses 9 to 21. And I'd ask that you'd stand if you're able to this morning as we read from God's word. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. You may be seated. Amen. Thank you so much, Brent, for sharing the word with us this morning. And uh, I'm, my name is Terry Jank. I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, my privilege to share the message this morning. I want to uh, remind you that um, there is... Um, there is the notes for the sermon in your bulletin, but also if you have the church app, uh, Chris has organized it so that you can, you can fill in the notes on your device and then have the notes saved for, for future reference if you so choose to do so. I just want to give you a heads up that uh, this morning the sermons got a long runway. Uh, it's going to take us a while to get off the ground and... Uh, as far as when we land it, that depends on my grandson who uh, goes like this and says, okay, wrap it up, Grandpa. But, uh, <laughs> but uh, we're, we're grateful to be able to be in Romans 12. And um, I'm going to start this runway, uh, this takeoff, with a quote from a book I've read recently by William Willimon called Shaped by the Bible. And he says this. He says, if the Bible is incapable of forming new people, or if we are unwilling to be formed and reformed by the Bible, then I can think of little need to read it. Now, I want that to land on you and think about it. And uh, I want you to think about the fact that perhaps the Bible is read so little because many people who even profess to live by it do not read the Bible regularly. In fact, I read a statistic recently that said 20% of people who own a Bible will never read it from cover to cover in their entire lives, 20%. And so we have to ask ourselves the purpose of reading Scripture. Um, the central Scripture that we're studying this winter comes from Romans chapter 12, and it says that we are to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. And of course, the primary tool that God renews our mind with is the Scriptures, the Bible, the Word of God. Another book by an author named uh, Robert Mulholland said in this book called Shaped by the Word, 
He said transformation occurs when Scripture is viewed as a place of encounter with God and a hunger to respond in love to whatever God desires, as you read it in the Scriptures. Again, shaped by the Word. Um, Shaped by the Bible, shaped by the Word. These books have so many common themes. And the point is that too many books... Too many sermons, too many articles, too much study is aimed at actually understanding what the original meaning of the text is, and too little weight is put on the intent of the text, which is actually to change our lives. The Bible has not been given for our information, but for our transformation. And if it doesn't result in a changed life, it hasn't landed where God wants it to land. So I'm not, I'm not belittling the importance of understanding the author's meaning and the historical context and the background and all that, but if it doesn't get out of the, the first century A.D. in the case of Romans and get into the 21st century in your life and how you live it out, it isn't accomplishing its purpose. I want to illustrate this with describing a letter that was found in an attic. You can imagine an attic of a house in the States, and um, a letter was found in a chest in this attic. It was not dated. It is not postmarked. All that is known about the letter is that it appears to be written by a woman to a man. And here is what the letter said in simple form. Dear John, I write this to you as I gaze upon these red roses. I think of you. You have been through some terribly difficult days, but now you must pull yourself together and have hope. While there has been much confusion and difficulty for you in the past couple of years, I am certain that the future will be better for you. You must forget what is past, old hurts and fears, past trials, and look forward to tomorrow. Love, Jane. Now, With no context, you could read this letter and you could come to your own conclusions. Perhaps this is written by a woman writing to her lover after having received some roses. She writes to comfort him because he evidently has been through something traumatic. Maybe he has gone through the war, our war, and now is being encouraged by his lover, fiance, wife. But if you investigated this letter further, you would find out that indeed it was written in 1965, not during the Civil War or something, 1965, written by a woman named Jane Smith, and it was written to her nephew named John. She wrote it not because of a war, but because his world had been rocked by a girlfriend whom he had hoped to marry, but she had broken up with him thus dashing his dreams. And the roses that she describes at the beginning of her letter are not anything about love. It's the roses on this cheap wallpaper of a motel room in Cleveland where she was at the time writing from. Very different context than what you might have imagined indeed. And so the point I'm making is that if we had never found out the context, if we didn't know the background of the letter, what then? Well, actually, we would still know the intent of the letter, wouldn't we? We would understand the purpose for writing the letter was to encourage another person in a time of need. 
And that is true of the Bible as well. Though we do have a ton of background on every text in the Bible, every book of the Bible we can understand, the context it was written in, the historical background, the political situation, we have a lot of that. But we don't necessarily need to understand it completely to understand the intent of the Word of God, the purpose for which God has given the Scriptures. Do you remember that incredible story in Matthew 17 and other passages where Peter, James, and John go up on a mountain with Jesus. It's called the Mount of Transfiguration. The word metamorphe, transformation, is used in that passage of Jesus. And as they're up there, the glory of God falls down upon the Son of God, and he, he is transfigured. He is gloriously brilliant before them. And the Father, God, speaks from heaven these words, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Now, do you remember what other two characters appeared on the mountain along with Jesus? Do you remember? Moses and Elijah. Now, why Moses and Elijah? Why not Abraham and David? As you know, probably, the, the reason it was Moses and Elijah was because Moses is this man who represents the law of God. The law of God meant, represents the entire truth of God that he wants to give his people to live by. And Elijah, of course, is the representation of all the prophets of God. And what are the prophets of God? The prophets of God were sent by God into a specific time and place for a specific people to give the truth of God, the, the, the flesh that they needed to have to live it out. And so the law and the prophets were incredible. That's why Jesus said, when he said, the greatest commandment is love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself, all the law and the prophets are summed up in this. You see, the, the people of God not only need the law of God, the truth which has been revealed, but they need the prophet of God to say, this is how you need to live it out, folks. And the church of Jesus Christ in the 21st century in Canada needs it as much as Israel did when they were in exile. And so we have this incredible scripture that is meant to be applied. It's been given for our information. And it's been given for our transformation. And so as we think about this, <clears throat> I want you to think about how the Bible Again, Willimon, William Willimon, quote, the Bible is not merely describing a new world, the truth of God. It's actually constructing a new world. That's what he said. I love that. It's not just describing a new world. What does the truth of God want to shape people to be? It's constructing those people. It says in the Bible, we're being formed into a spiritual house. And he says, in addition, that being Christian is not equivalent to being human. Think about that. Being Christian is not just equivalent to being human. Every human on the earth is human. And God says, I want my people to be different. And so this is the kind of message that Romans chapter 12 is bringing to us. He is speaking more prophetic kind of language than law language. We know lots of what he said is true. We know we're meant to love one another. We know we're meant to forgive one another. Are we living it out? Are we doing it? 
And the intent of scripture is that we do it, that we are transformed and changed. Paul's instructing Christians on what it looks like when you surrender to God, when you cooperate with the Holy Spirit, and when you are renewed in your thinking. Now the reason that I have given you a long runway of this sermon this morning is because yesterday, and I did not know the songs that Anna would be choosing for this morning, by the way, but yesterday as I was sitting with my sermon, thinking and praying over it, wondering about how I would preach it, God seemed to impress upon me the scripture found in in Ezekiel chapter 37, the valley of dry bones. Do you remember that scripture where Ezekiel, God, God takes Ezekiel, the prophet, and he takes him to a valley of absolutely dry bones, human skeletons. Now remember, Ezekiel is a prophet during the time of the exile when Israel is in Babylon for 70 years under exile. And God takes Ezekiel to a valley that had been a battlefield, and now there's just skeletons all over. And, he's, and, and the interesting thing is that God says to Ezekiel, can these bones live? <laughs> and Ezekiel just says, well, you alone know God. You. You know. And then God says to Ezekiel, prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you, and you shall live. I will call, lay sinews upon you, and, and I will cause flesh to come upon you, and cover you with skin, and I will put breath in you, and you shall live, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God, he says. He writes this to the prophet Israel, through the prophet Israel to Israel um, in, in exile in Babylon. Well, what does Ezekiel do? Ezekiel obeys God, and he goes out to that valley of dry bones, and he, he prophesies, he speaks the truth of God over the valley of dry bones. And, uh, and so he started hearing the sound of rattling, rattling of bones. He started to hear the sounds of flesh and sinews and skin being brought on the bones. And all of a sudden, he, he could see this vast army. Except there was one problem, he says in verse, uh, verse 6 or 8. He says, there was no breath. There was no breath. And then we read in the scriptures that God called him to prophesy again. And God breathed, prophesied to the four winds, and the four winds and the breath of God filled, the Spirit of God filled those bones, and it became a living army. Now, I share that with you because when I sat with my sermon yesterday, I felt as though God said, can, can these bones live? And I said, God, only you know whatever good a sermon is going to get, whatever is going to happen only you know, unless, unless you come, God, and you breathe into this sermon, it's not going to accomplish anything. I'm going to be a bunch of hot wind air up here not accomplishing it. God's breath has to fill the preaching of God's truth and the prophetic applying of God's truth if it's going to account for anything. Enabling us to become what? A living, breathing army of God on this earth which is desperately lost. And the people of God rising up out of their death becoming more than human. Right? Becoming God's transformed 
people. That's the way God wants to impact this world. And let's pray that that happens even in this sermon today. Let's pray now. Breathe on us breath of God. Fill us with life anew that we may love what thou dost love and do what thou wouldst do. Lord, for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, let's back up the bus a bit and let's look at Romans. In chapter 12 of Romans, for the last several weeks, we have been talking about one, verses 1 to 13. And in, that, in those verses, we see that Paul is primarily addressing his language, his teaching, his instruction to those that are inside the church and their relationships. He is talking about how to discern the will of God and how to think about yourself soberly and in humility and how to get along with others that are members in the body of Christ and how to use your spiritual gift to build others up and how to genuinely love one another even when you disagree and how to keep your spiritual fire stoked and and be zealous for God and how to patiently endure in hard times and how to pray constantly and how to offer hospitality to others and all that is for the church to be the church, to be the people of God on earth. But in verse 14, we start to see a little bit of a change in the focus. What I think happens is that Paul widens the aperture to include not only the church and our relationships within the body of Christ, but also within the world around us. Christian virtue now is going to be put on display for the world to see. And beginning in verse 14, we see that Paul is teaching to prepare us for that. You're going to be watched by the world. Are you ready for that? That's what Paul's doing in verse 14. What is the world going to witness in us? What is our witness to the world that is watching? What is the world learning? What has the world learned about the church of Jesus Christ in the last two years in Canada through the COVID pandemic? I don't know if I want to answer that question. What is the witnessing world seeing and and concluding about Jesus based on how the followers of Jesus are living their lives? And so this scripture, friends, I've given a long runway because this scripture, I think, of all the chapter, in fact, of all the book, these verses, 14 to 18, that we're looking at today are, are some of the ones that most confront us to be beyond human, to be spirit-filled followers of Jesus. Live it out. So verses 1 to 13, mainly about how we view ourselves, how we view each other in the body of Christ, verses 14 and, and, and so on, looking at how we live in the world. And then after Easter, when we're going to get into chapter 13, we're going to study about how we're supposed to relate to the government. The government that God has put in place over us for such a time as this. What is our view of the government? I've heard a lot of interesting thoughts in the last two years. That was my adjective, interesting. Uh, In the last two years about the government. Well, let's look at what God has to say in chapter 13 after Easter. But today, let's look at these four Christian virtues that are put on display through you and me the central part of our witness. How are we doing in these? I can 
only say that, that I think God has some work to do yet on me and on us. I was reading this past week about two moms who were at a graduation at Duke University in the United States. And the one mom said to the other mom, she said, um, well, your son is 21 and he's now graduated. It must be great to be done with him. But she probably didn't quite mean it the way it sounded, to be done with him. <laughs> and the other mom quickly responded, I will not be done with him until I die. I want you to know God's not done with us, folks. God is not done with us. And so as you open up these four pairs of vice and virtue, may the Lord put his fingers on the things that he wants us to learn. Let's begin. First one. God says that his people that are being transformed by his grace are a people that bless instead of curse. Verse 14, Paul says, Bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse. The first word that is in that verse, verse 14, is the word bless. It's in the second person plural. That means not just you, but it means you all. It means all y'all. It means you, church, you are the people that when you're persecuted, you respond with blessing. <laughs> now, blessing means to speak well of someone. It's the word eulogy. You ever been to a funeral and they're not speaking well of the guy in the casket? I don't think they'd choose him to do the eulogy. You know, it's easy to speak well and to bless those who bless you. But it's hard to bless those who persecute you. The word persecute here, it means to hound someone. It means to pursue them. Have you ever been hounded by somebody? You don't want to turn around and bless them. You want to turn around and hit them. This is a very challenging scripture. Bless those who hound you and do not curse them. The natural person without the Spirit of God that's not being transformed by the Spirit of God wants to turn around and respond in kind, strike back. Chapter 6 of Luke, Jesus said, But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. To the one who strikes you on the cheek, the other offer him also. And from the one who takes your cloak, give him your tunic as well. He goes on in verse 32. In Luke 6, Jesus says, If you love those who love you, how are you different? He says, even sinners do that. And he says, if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? Even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to get repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sin sinners lend to sinners expecting to get something back. But love your enemies, do good, lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, for you will be sons of the Most High God. You see how Jesus is calling us not just to be human, but to be transformed, to be like him. Hard words, very hard words, easy to say, hard to live. I get it. Being Christian should not be the same as being human. Instead, we, like the, the rag and bone man, you know, the song, I'm only human after all, don't put the blame on me, right? That's not God's call on our lives. Now, I, know, I want you to know, 
I can sin without help from any of you. <laughs> but somehow, when you put us all together, some of you helped me sin. And I'd probably help some of you sin. It says, Reinald Niebuhr, he said, we are often more immoral in community than we are when we're alone. What is it that causes that to happen, that we could sin worse in community than all by ourselves? Well, it's, it's nature, isn't it? It's, it's the way we are. It's how we grade against each other. It's how we disagree. The thing we need to remember, friends, is that it's all on display all these virtues are on display. So if you and I don't, don't get along, and if you and I are cursing each other instead of blessing, or if you and I are responding that way, it's all being seen by the world. The world is witnessing. You can be sure someone is watching and learning and concluding. That's what a follower of Christ is like. Let's move on. Empathy instead of indifference. We move on to verse 15, and it says... Paul writes, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. It's sad to say that sometimes we do ex the exact opposite. Proverbs 17.5 says, he who is glad at calamity will not go unpunished. Have you ever rejoiced at someone else's misfortune? Empathy is the ability to understand and share in the feelings of another person. It's the ministry of empathy that we see in Jesus when it says that he looked upon the crowds and he had compassion and he felt for them because he saw them they were like sheep without a shepherd. The quality, this ability to enter into someone else's feelings, whether it's grief or joy or whatever, is, is a kingdom quality. It's something that God does in you. And um, it, it's truly supernatural to set your own feelings aside. It really is. It's, it's God-given to set your own feelings aside and to enter into the feelings of another person and to minister to them. It is so very important. And the opposite of it is indifference. It, it's, it's so consumed with your own feelings that you don't even care about what that person is going through or what they're feeling. <clears throat> you know, I think of this verse 15 and I think about our ministry of grief share. Uh, Dave and Lorraine are leading. The purpose of grief share is, uh, is having a caring group of people around you who will walk alongside you through one of life's most difficult experiences, the loss of a loved one. And it's, it's empathy that is needed in those situations. It's, it's the ability to just put your, your own feelings aside for a moment and, and let someone tell their story and share their feelings and, and walk through that valley with them, the valley of the shadow of death. And this verse teaches us that we're never to do that alone. Do you notice that it says, rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. Both sides of the continuum were not meant to be experienced alone. We should not go through hard times alone. We should be walking it together with others, and we should not go through some incredible answered prayer, some joy, some breakthrough in your life without having somebody to say, praise God, this is something I just found out. We're meant to do it together. And uh, it requires transformed relationships, folks, to be able to be others-centered. 
Next we see in this scripture humility instead of high-mindedness. Verse 16, live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Now that word haughty is not one I use on a daily basis. (laughs) Um, The Greek word means to be high-minded, to be so puffed up in your thinking about yourself. I read a story about a man who had a high opinion of himself, and he and his wife were at a carnival where he stepped onto a coin-operated scale, but the scale spitted out a little card after you stood on it, and it didn't just give you your weight, it gave you sort of like a horoscope version about your personality. Yeah, something kind of corny, but... Anyway, so this man steps on the scale, and, and then out comes the card, and he reads it, and then after reading it, he hands it to his wife. And, and she looks at it, and she reads it out loud. She says, you are dynamic, a born leader, handsome, and much admired by women for your personality. And uh, then she added this, hmm, I see it's got your weight wrong as well. You've got to trust our spouses to keep us humble. High-minded, haughty. That word does not just mean that you think of yourself too highly. That word means that in thinking of yourself so preoccupied with yourself that you actually are looking down on others with contempt, with disdain upon the lowly. And that's why... Paul says, do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. It's a really important word. We talked about humility several weeks ago in Romans 12, 3, not to think of ourselves more highly than we ought to, but with sober judgment. And uh, John Dixon writes that humility stands alone among the virtues that in, in the sense that as soon as you think you have it, you probably don't. And C.S. Lewis says that it does not mean thinking less of yourselves. It just means thinking about yourself less. And so that is humility. 1 Peter 5 says, Clothe yourselves with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. All of us have had the feeling of being in the presence of someone who just had so much to think about themselves that they had no time to think about you. All of us have felt that. All of us have had people who have walked into room and in somehow they say, I'm here. And then you know other people who walk in the room and they say, oh, you're here. You know the difference of those kinds of people. And God says that in my family, God says in my transformed people that are surrendered to my will, there's no place for that because grace abounds in my family. Finally, we want to look at the last one, and that is this pair between vice and virtue, between peaceful and vengeful. Verse 17, Paul says, Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Now, a big mistake that immature Christians make, a big mistake that legalistic Christians make when they read the Old Testament particularly, is to associate 
and think that certain words apply in a certain way. For example, they read an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And they would maybe seek to live their lives that way. Well, I want you to know in that scripture is talking about civic justice, not personal vengeance. You see. That's why God gave us the New Testament. That's why God reinterpreted Scripture through, through the, the grace of Jesus Christ because a whole bunch of people were getting it wrong. Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. Can you imagine what kind of blind and toothless society we'd have if, if, that, <laughs> if that was the way we lived? No, this is not a word about personal vengeance. This is a word about civic justice. You see, the point is, folks, you don't have the ability to take a personal vengeance in a just and proper way. Because the hurt that you've experienced or that your loved one has experienced has so blinded you from being able to act justly and to do what is right, you're not qualified. You have one side of the story, and that's all you see. And when you go to talk about that hurt, that person that you only gather around you, friends that are going to, oh, can you, oh, and they're going to agree with you. We all do it. And so that's why in verse 19, which we'll look at in a couple of weeks, Paul says, never avenge yourselves, but leave room for God's wrath and and, and that's because you're not qualified. This attitude of repaying, in verse 17, repaying evil for evil has no place in the kingdom of God. In fact, no amount of repaying in that sense is even on either side of the continuum is, is proper in the kingdom, in the family of God. If, if repaying is on the evil side of things, then it's just leading to a, a corrupt uh, relationship, a vengeance, a discord. And if it's on the positive side, it, it leads to a one-upmanship. It leads to an even the score. Keep up the good deeds so you look like you're staying on par with your neighbor. Like if they had you over for dinner, well, now we've got to have them over for dinner. And well, if they give that gift for Christmas, well, we've got to give that gift for Christmas. And You see, this repayment attitude, it has no place. It squelches love, squelches spontaneity, squelches grace in the church of Jesus Christ. The family of God's not, not supposed to operate that way. We don't keep a record of wrongs, and we don't kept, keep a record of rights either, folks. Not if you're being transformed by the Holy Spirit. And so, verse 18, as far as it depends on you, live at peace. You know, I, I, every time I think of that verse, I, I just, guilty, I, I just confess to God, as far as it depends on you, live at peace. Well, how much depends on me? Have I done everything I can do in every relationship to be at peace? And usually if, if I answer it properly, I'll probably say, maybe not. But I try. As far as it depends on you means none of us are off the hook. God does not say that you are qualified to decide who wronged who the most and who should take initiative in reconciliation. Do you remember what Jesus said 
in Matthew 5, 23. He says, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift, first go and be reconciled to your brother. It doesn't say if you, if you remember that you have something against your brother. It's saying if you remember that your brother has something against you, take the initiative. So friends, our lives are on display. These virtues that God calls the transformed to live out are on display to the world, to each other. Whether we demonstrate vice or virtue, the world is watching. And uh, we're ambassadors for Christ. And so I want to encourage you, keep going back to the Lord Keep going back to say, breathe on me, breath of God. Let these bones live. Let's pray. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, uh, just thank you, Lord, for this scripture, and it is um, a hard teaching. It is not an easy teaching. It is not natural. It is not human. Um, it's not normal. It's not average. This teaching calls us to uh, live on a higher ground, a higher level. It calls us to live like you, Jesus, and we need you in order to do it. And so help us, Lord. Breathe on us, breath of God, and may we become that living, breathing army of saints in the land that, uh, yeah, just show what you're like, Jesus. I ask you in your name, amen. Thank you, God. Thank you, Lord, that there is no one like you, God. Thank you for just how much greater you are than we could ever imagine, God, for how inconceivable you are, Lord. Thank you that we get to be connected to you and that by remaining in you and remaining connected to you, we can be overflowed, God, <laughs> you know, just filled up and overflowed and that we can, we can just love on others, God. And I pray that this message, we would not just hear it, but actually put it into action like we've been talking about, God, loving on others. Yeah, in your name I pray, amen. Have a good Sunday. <laughs>